envelopes. Envelope one. In envelope one, there is a ticket. It is a round-the-world ticket for you to travel first class on every flight. Um, you can go to any five-star hotel you want for a whole year. You can take your loved ones. You can take uh, family, whoever you like. You also get a credit card with that to just spend whatever you want for that whole year of absolute luxury. Uh, the last thing about that envelope is also a guarantee from your boss saying your job will be open and kept and you'll probably get a promotion and a bit of a pay rise just for the fun of it at the end of the year. So that's your year. Envelope one, year-round world luxury trip. Envelope two. Envelope two is quite simple. It just has two sets of keys in it. Uh, and one set of keys opens the door of your choosing within a two-mile radius of this building. Uh, but in that building, you, you get to uh, you know, go to any designer you like and get it appointed in any way, all the white goods that you want, not the ones that you have to live with, you know, with the dodgy doors. You, know, you, you, you get to choose everything that you want in this luxury building. Oh, the second set of keys in that envelope, this is for me particularly, you can choose any car you like as well. Tim's got a grin on his face already. He's picturing it. So that's envelope two, the luxury house of your choosing and the luxury car. Envelope three is very simple. It's just a promise. A promise of a place in eternity with God. A, a, a place in heaven just for you. Now, it's interesting, is it? Which of those three envelopes do you long for? Which envelope will you think about the most in the next few moments? We've just started looking at these two chapters in Matthew's Gospel, haven't we? Uh, chapters 8 and 9. And the eternal kingdom of God, heaven, is hinted at throughout these chapters. We'll pick up on it more and more as the weeks go on. It appears as a banquet, as a feast as a party beyond all parties. So whatever you read about Jesus here in these verses, let's be clear, that is the goal. Heaven is the end goal here. And Matthew 8 begins, as we saw last week, with Jesus being presented as the king of that kingdom of heaven. The party host, the banquet provider. And Jesus is the king. In a sense, what he's doing in these verses is he's handing envelope three to you. And he's saying, do you want it? Will you accept it? Will you trust me in it? And we've seen evidence so far, haven't we, to show that Jesus is the king of that glorious eternal kingdom of God. Uh, we've seen his kingship uh, displayed, haven't we, in, in the miracles of cleansing uh, the leper with a touch. We've seen him heal the centurion's servant with a word at distance. Uh, we've seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law from, from a fever. We've seen him make all these kind of local doctors probably quite irate because he's healing so many that come to him just in moments. The evidence is plain for all to see, isn't it? Jesus is the king of God's good eternal kingdom. Uh, the king of heaven uh, and having defeated death, risen and now ascended. He's now, this king of heaven is holding out to us through his word and by his spirit an invitation. An invitation to the greatest party, the greatest banquet. I wonder how you'll respond. Which envelope do you want the most? 
Now in our passage today, apart from Jesus, let's just cast our eyes down. You'll see that there are two characters. We'll meet them in verse 18 and verse 21. And what we're going to see is how they respond to Jesus. In a sense, to use the illustration, is which envelope do they go for? Look with me at the first character. Why don't you cast your eyes down at verse 18 there. You'll see, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then we meet this man. A teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. First point, I will follow you. It's it's an all-consuming promise, isn't it? An all-consuming promise from who? A teacher of the law. I'll follow you wherever you go. It seems he's willing, doesn't he, by saying that. uh, He'll go anywhere. He'll pay any price to be with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to listen to the teacher, Jesus. He longs to be with Jesus more than anything else. How can he say such a promise? He's seen Jesus in action, hasn't he? You can imagine just, you know, just a few verses back, you can see there, he's probably beginning to realise who Jesus is. He's the king of God's heavenly kingdom. I mean, no other could do all of those things that we saw last week. Healing, cleansing, the demon possessed are released by him. Jesus has done it all, probably in front of this teacher of law's eyes. He's, he's witnessed this. And so surely, as you get to verse 19... That response from him is probably the most natural and obvious response. I will follow you wherever you go. (coughs) Even if it means paying a great price. You know, and imagine for us, he's saying, I'll go without anything. Envelope one, envelope two, whatever whatever this world offers me, I'll go with three. Because you're the king of that kingdom. But I wonder, has he truly realised what it costs to follow Jesus? Does he really know the true price to get him into that kingdom with that lavish banquet? Has he really got it? Have you really got it? Now, we can assume from Jesus' answer that follows uh, in the following verse, he, that this teacher of the law hasn't quite understood everything. Now, of course, we have the luxury, don't we? We can look back just one verse uh, to verse 17 uh, and see that quote there from Isaiah 53. Now, the teacher of the law uh, would have known that verse very well, but would he have understood at that moment where Jesus stood in front of him that right before him was actually the suffering servant of God that Isaiah 53 spoke of? Does he really know that the cost of entry into God's kingdom. It would be like, you know, the the life of the man stood in front of him. That's the cost. Has he got it? He's the one who'd be led like a lamb to the slaughter as he was hung on a cross. Has this teacher of the law got it? I don't think so. I don't think he quite understands that a debt has to be paid for his sin. That is his rebellion or his apathy towards God. What we see is that the Son of Man, Jesus, needs to do a work of the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 spoke of, dying on a cross. Jesus doesn't say it here, but his answer to the man suggests this teacher of the law, hey, he's he's kind of saying, hey, don't promise too much too soon. 
Don't promise too much too soon. Matthew is a writer, or he's regular. If you look through the Gospel, he quotes the Old Testament again and again. And he assumes you know the context, Isaiah 53. If you look back in verse 17 of chapter 8, have a look, you'll see it there. Matthew's quoting that verse. There it is clear that God's servant will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, not esteemed. That's the context of Isaiah 53. Well, this king of this heavenly kingdom is despised and rejected. And Jesus' point to this teacher will be, well, if it's like this for the master, it's going to be like that for the servant as well. This man has not realised the cost of entry into God's kingdom. It requires a sacrifice. And Jesus, yes, he steps in to take the punishment we deserve. His blood is shed on the cross. He's the despised servant. He's bruised for our iniquities. But this teacher has also not realised the cost for himself. If his master is despised and rejected, then he will be too. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm a bit, bit, bit morbid here, aren't I? You know, Andy, you're being a bit uh, half-pint empty. Come on, cheer up a little bit, you know, kind of go on. Can I challenge you? Why don't you try and go to your office tomorrow? Or the playgrounds, you take the kids to school, wherever you are, whatever your context. Why don't you just go and uh, speak to every person that you meet and say that you love, articulate clearly that you love to follow and trust the Lord Jesus with every part of your life. And it would be the best thing for them to do that too. Some would be embarrassed, wouldn't they, in a very British way. <laughs> Let's just move on. I've got to go and see a friend. And they'd run. In a British way, that's a slow walk. But you know, you get the picture. I guess many would just mock you. Don't be silly. There will be opposition, wouldn't there? This teacher says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. <clears throat> Without putting words into Jesus' mouth, he says, don't be naive. Following Jesus requires speaking of Jesus, commending of Jesus wherever you go. Oh, it's so easy isn't it? in this context, isn't it? Say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus all next week, it's going to be great, and I'm brilliant. So easy here, isn't it? I'll follow you where, whatever the cost. I'll follow Jesus. What I'm saying is don't underestimate the cost of following Jesus. Let me give you some names. Tim, Catherine, Holly, Mark, Kate, Caroline, David and Chris. That list of names means nothing to you. They're people I grew up with. And they were in my year group in a very large youth group in our church. And they're representative, I guess, of many more that seemingly were followers of Jesus Christ. But I think, if I'm honest, they were naive to the cost. I don't know whether they underestimated the cost of Christ that he bore on the cross, so later waned in their confidence of salvation through him alone. I'm not sure. Or perhaps they were kind of seed planted amongst thorns. So when life got um, tough, they, they kind of choked. As the parable shows us, they couldn't bear the cost, being rejected by friends, living the distinctive Christian life. I'm not sure which way. Whichever way, they promised too much too soon. And they underestimated the cost. 
I've been reading again this last week a, a book that we're going to be looking at uh, in a men's breakfast uh, this week. So guys, when you email and say you're coming, which you're going to do sometime today, probably, or tomorrow, and you'll feel quite guilty about doing it tomorrow because that's way too late, but the, email me today, you'll get emailed back a chapter of a book, J.C. Ryle's Holiness, chapter 5, it's called The Cost. It's one of my favourite chapters, I read it probably every year. And Ryle asked the question, he was uh, the Bishop of Liverpool uh, in the, around the 1900s, he asked the question, what does it cost to be a true Christian? And he warns the Christian, uh, the reader, that the cost is great and should be estimated accurately. Let me just highlight four very, br- very briefly. Ryle says this, he says, following Christ will cost you your self-righteousness. He says this, a man must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going and sacrament giving, Lord's Supper and so on, and trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. Following Christ will cost you your self-righteousness. Secondly, he says, following Christ will cost you your sins. A man must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. He must face against it, quarrel with it, Break from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labour to keep it under, whatever the world around him may say or think. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, it will cost you your sins. You've got to fight them. Thirdly, he says, following Christ will cost you a love of ease. He says, a man must daily stand on his guard like a soldier on enemy's ground. He must take heed to his behaviour every hour of the day, in every company and in every place, in public as well as private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imagination, his motives, his conduct in every relation of his life. Doesn't sound like the easy life, does it? Well, following Christ will cost you your love of ease. Fourthly, he says, following Christ will cost you the favour of the world. He says, a man must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked. Do you know what it feels like? To be ridiculed, he says, slandered, persecuted and even hated. When we authentically know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, as he's king over every area of our lives, when we dare, when we dare to speak of him and make him known, there is a cost. There is a cost amongst those we know and love. So the warning here is very simple. Don't be too quick to say, as this teacher of the law does, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. Don't be naive to the cost of picking up envelope three. Cost is high for us, but what is the cost to provide that envelope in a sense? So that's the second point. What's the cost of a place in heaven? Well, it's simple really, and we know it, I'm sure, all of us. It's the death of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20, uh, if you can. Uh, the, The point is made there, though you may not see it at first. Verse 20. Jesus replied, this is to the teacher who said he would follow Jesus, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now let's think about what he's saying there. The the, the Son of Man is a title 
taken from the Old Testament. And Jesus um, uses this title for himself. He is the fulfillment of that. It's a title used to describe God's son as a king over God's heavenly kingdom who will have eternal dominion. Why don't we turn back to it? Daniel chapter 7. First one to find the page number shouted out. In the 800s. 894. 894. 893. It's 894. Let's go for 893. It's verse 13 and 14. Page 893 of your Bibles. Here, here if you like, what the title of the Son of Man, his rights, his authority, his power. Listen out uh, for it. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting, that will not pass away, uh, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, of course, this is written hundreds of years uh, before it's fulfilled in Christ. But these are the rights of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the rightful ruler and heir of all that God has and is. And this is what stands before. This is the one who stands before this teacher of the law in verse 19. Uh, this is the teacher who says, oh, I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. One with sovereign power, eternal dominion. I'll follow you. And you kind of think, well, that sounds quite good, doesn't it? To follow the one with eternal power and dominion. That sounds wonderful. It surely must lead to a life of ease. But then you get to verse 20. Flip back to Matthew 8, verse 20, page uh, 973. And we see in verse 20... Does following the Son of Man with eternal dominion lead to a life of ease because he has all the power and authority? No, look. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In some ways, it makes no sense, does it? Jesus, as the Son of Man, you see, in his earthly ministry, should have rights over all, power over all, authority over all, forever and ever and ever. We've seen that, in a sense, all that power and authority displayed in the miracles that he's done, haven't we? In just the previous verses. Well, that is what Daniel 7 shows us he has. This is who Jesus is. But in Matthew 8, verse 20, look what happens. It's a very different picture. Because there we see the Son of Man, the one with all power and authority, saying, I'll give it up. He relinquishes all of that. He relinquishes his heavenly rights, doesn't he? But not only his heavenly rights, he also relinquishes his earthly rights. Uh, You can go further. He, He actually relinquishes his human rights. No, take one more step. He even relinquishes his animal rights. Foxes have dens. Birds have nests. The Son of Man, with all his eternal dominion and authority, well, he's got nowhere to lay his head. There's no place to to rest and, and call home. 
And we speak about human rights and animal rights in our society rightly. And we should rightly campaign and so on for people whose human rights are being violated. We think of Christians in North Korea right now, Muslims fleeing in Myanmar right now. It is in the news all the time. But Jesus, the Son of Man, with all power and authority, relinquishes all his rights. No place to lay his head. I wonder, do you see the price? Do you see the price that, that God puts on a place in heaven under the rule of his son? The answer is simple. It's, it's, it's everything. He's willing to give his only son, the son of man, who has everything, who is everything, for you. I have two sons. They're a delight for me and my wife. They're not perfect, but they're all right. I love my boys and I'm embarrassingly proud and protective of them. I think that's okay. But what would it give for me to give up one of my sons? To, 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 for them to be stripped of all of their uh, human rights and even their animal rights, to be nailed to a cross for someone else? Well, let me tell you, I wouldn't do it for any of you. Or anyone else in this world. I just don't love you enough. The point is that God loves you and me so much that he's willing to send his only son. Send him here. And there's no place for him to lay his head. That is, he gives up everything for you. The son of man is humiliated. From his great position of eternal dominion and authority, he's... He's willing to be humiliated for you. The Son of Man, the picture is in these close verses, the Son of Man with all power is willing to become the suffering servant, despised and rejected. And that is surely why those two verses, 17 and 20, are so close. Do you get it? What price is the place for you to be in heaven? What's the cost of a place in heaven? Well, the price is paid by the Son of Man becoming the suffering servant, the one who then takes on our infirmities, who's pierced for our transgressions, whose wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. In each of those statements from Isaiah 53, do you get the picture? There's transfer, there's swap, there's substitution. It's exactly what Jesus becomes for us. As the Son of Man, he's the all-powerful King, As the suffering servant, he's the one who transfers onto himself the punishment that my sin deserves. The infinite cost for a place in heaven is a debt that we owe God for our sin. But it is paid as Jesus relinquishes everything for you. Too many assume that they're born of middle class uh, families born into a suburban sort of environment, if they do not rape, pillage and murder, then God would surely want to spend time with them in eternity. That's the assumption in our culture. Obituaries, if you ever read them, I, I do sometimes, I'm that miserable. Um, no, I'm not really. Uh, but, you know, you look at them and they're amazing. They're littered with assurances of God's approval and welcome into heaven. But have you heard that? There's this arrogant assumption, isn't there? that the majority of upright citizens of this world deserve heaven. 
There's no sense of debt before God. There's no sense of justice for ignoring God all of their lives. See, whoever you are, and whatever you have or have not done, none of us have a place in heaven on our own merits. We must accept the gift that we don't deserve and we have not earned. And Jesus is offering it to you now. Do you see how much God loves you? Well, when you do, just let it sit with you. Think about it. Meditate on it. Fill your heart and your mind with that wonderful truth that the Son of Man has become the suffering servant. For you. Don't underestimate the cost of a place in heaven. Don't say too much too soon. I'll follow you wherever you go. The cost, think about, know the cost for Jesus. We've just seen that. Lastly, third point, quickly. Let's see the true cost of following Jesus. Last two verses, verse 21 and 22. Let's look at those quickly. Another disciple said to him, we're introduced to the second character here. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Now, Jesus, what he's doing here is using a, it's kind of a rabbinic teaching, a Jewish kind of teaching method to be actually deliberately outrageous to this disciple here, this follower of Jesus. He says something extreme, something really extreme. It looks at it, you can look at verse 22, and it's quite shocking, isn't it? He says something deliberately extreme to make a warning, to make his point. His point is this, when we follow Jesus, he cannot be an equal among many other priorities. Now, please don't think that Jesus is in any way saying to this man, he's telling this man to ignore his duty to his family, his parents, and so on. Whether they're dead or alive, no. In fact, Jesus elsewhere rebukes the Pharisees for doing just that. Jesus uses the extreme here to fire essentially a warning shot across your bow. And he's warning us against delay. He wants us to have him as our number one priority now, today. The previous man in verse 18, if you remember, he's he's in danger of promising too much too soon. By contrast, as one commentator put it, he said, this second man, who's a disciple, that's a follower, a loose follower of Jesus, this man is in danger of promising too little too late. You know, you can imagine his thinking, can't you? What's going in his mind? Maybe yours too. I've I've got some stuff to do. Uh, You know, I'll follow you next week, Jesus. You can be Lord and you can be King. You can be pretty much everything. But, you know, just let me get through this season of my life. Once this relationship's over and uh, once, you know, I've kind of progressed and I'm in that kind of status in my life, then I'll let you be Lord. Oh, this man realises who Jesus is. He seems to know the cost of following him, but he wants to put it off. He wants to do something else. He wants to be with someone else. And Jesus says, stop. Stop the excuses. Stop putting me off. Oh, one day it'll be burying your dad. The next day it'll be the work at the office. The next day it'll be the relationship and illness. The excuses, the excuses, the excuses. Put off, put off, put off, put off. I lived at university with the captain of the Great Britain hockey team. 
He's a good friend. Uh, we lived together for a few years and we played together at our time of university. And I think he was probably the most naturally gifted hockey player this country has ever seen. He went to the Olympics and uh, all of those kind of things. And he's also one of the most genuinely lovely, kind people I think I've ever met and uh, spent time with. His father was a church minister. He'd grown up in the church. He knew and believed that Jesus was the suffering servant. He could have taken you to many parts of the Bible and just taught you very, very well. And he wanted to follow Jesus. And we would uh, spend lots of time together uh, talking about this. But like this man in verse 21 and 22, he wanted to follow Jesus on his terms, in his time. He didn't mind Jesus being saviour. He wanted to be the recipient of all of that saving work of Jesus. He didn't mind that, but he didn't want him as Lord, King of his life. He wanted to wait. He wanted to have other priorities, other you know, kind of things that uh, used up his time. He loved life. He was very talented. Uh, and uh, you know, lots of kudos, lots of money because of his position. He travelled around the world playing hockey and people liked him. And he liked all the attention that that brought. You can imagine it. I'm not going to spell out the picture. See, following Jesus means to follow him as the son of man. The one with all authority over your life. You can't follow Jesus with a partial get-out clause, just in case things get tough. Jesus can't be an interest among others, whether that's relationship or work or sport or social life. And my friend, how many times we chatted about this, and we chatted lots as we lived together. How many times we went down to the pub and got a beer and discussed the glories of heaven and opened up the Bible and just had really great conversations together. However many times we did that, he could not follow the Son of Man at that time. He could not say that Jesus was going to be in control of his life, that he was Lord, King. And for my friend, it was too little too late as far as I still know. And that is heartbreaking. The Lord Jesus seeks everything, our all. That is the cost of following Jesus. Don't promise too much too soon. Please understand and know the cost of following Jesus. Know the cost for you, but also know what it costs God. When God, through his word and by his spirit, reaches out, as he's doing through these verses, as he's reaching out and he's offering, in a sense, the the kingdom of God, the, the eternal glories of heaven, through Jesus the King. Know what it cost him to offer you that. Understand in that how much he loves you. God was willing for his only son to die as a suffering servant, crushed, So that we don't have to be. Jesus, the Son of Man, the one with eternal dominion over all things, was willing to relinquish all of his rights so that by faith you may have a place to lay your head for eternity in the arms of your loving Creator God. Should we pray as we close? Let's pray. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who was willing to be humiliated in such a way as to become the suffering servant who would die in our place so that we might know your loving embrace for eternity, that we might enjoy the heavenly banquet. Lord, I pray for those of us here who still have questions. I pray that we would investigate more of the glories of the Lord Jesus and the cost that he bore so that we might have a place to lay our head for eternity. Amen.